And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Ben Rhodes as a young speechwriter on foreign policy and national security issues in the 2008 Barack Obama campaign. But uh, after the election, he became much more, uh, not just the president's collaborator on speeches, but one of his most important advisors. He's been involved in all the major initiatives of the administration, and no one articulates the president's thinking on national security better than Ben Rhodes. I had a really fascinating conversation with him the other day. Ben Rhodes, my friend, it's good to see you. Uh, We've spent a lot of time together. And uh, one thing I know about you is that um, this wasn't exactly your life plan to end up as the deputy uh, national security advisor for the president. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, how you... uh, how you grew up and 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 what led to all of this? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, really good to be with you, David. Um, I um, I always tell people when they ask me uh, for job advice and how to be in the White House that uh, the last thing I ever uh, envisioned myself being was a deputy national security advisor, and that the best plan is to not uh, have a plan to be that. That's my commencement speech. I- exactly. Don't make any plans. Don't don't think you're following the plan. Um, but, you know, I grew up in New York City, um, and after college, uh, you know, I had two interests, writing and politics, that were kind of in parallel. And after college, uh, I got a master's degree in fiction writing, uh, and I was going to, you know, become a writer. Um, but uh, that doesn't exactly support you, so I was doing uh, day jobs, including working campaigns. Um, Back up for a second, though. Growing up in New York, I mean, your brother's the... I don't know what his title is now, but he runs CBS. President of CBS News. He runs CBS News. Uh, You've got this weighty job with the president. Uh, Like, what went on in your house there (laughs) where you flogged every day (laughs) and told Uh, told to succeed? You know, I think what went on is that uh, my parents— New York City. New York City. um, And my parents are very different. Um, My father is from a small town in Texas, the first person to go to college in his family, uh, became a lawyer— my mother's uh, New York Jewish uh, background. Um, they met in Washington, actually. Uh, she was working uh, uh, around the Bobby Kennedy campaign um, mm-hmm. and at HUD, and he was uh, a lawyer in the Justice Department. And they moved up to New York, and he was a conservative Republican, Southern Methodist background. My mom, a liberal New York <coughs> Jew. And, and so there were all these different political opinions in the House. Um, and the one thing they agreed on is is how much they cared about current events and politics. And uh, we would argue about things at the dinner table from the time that I can remember. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think what they gave us, uh, just in addition to a good education and a focus on reading and writing, uh, is a space where we could all have our own views and all debate things and uh, people's differences were valued. Um, and it made us much more aware of the world around us from a very young age. Uh, I think that's the one thing that uh, ended up helping both me and my brother. And my brother, you know, had started as a kind of libertarian. He worked for Reason Magazine, whereas I was more uh, And Fox liberal. News for quite a few and years. And Fox News, yeah. So we were all over the map politically. Um, but I think that's why it worked, because everybody ha- was given the space to have different points of view. Um and so we were, we were very must pl- make Thanksgiving dinner interesting. <laughs> it w- it was. I mean, it, it made everything more interesting uh, because uh, we were again encouraged to debate these things, argue about these things, care about things. Um, and uh, so I always had this interest in politics. And and I actually, you know, I worked for Rudy Giuliani's reelection campaign when I was in college. He was a different guy back then in '97. It was more like local politics. But I, you know, I was. Uh, I tried. I tried out different uh, political identities when when mm-hmm. I was younger, um, but by the time I was in grad school, um, I was working for actually uh, the uh, some Brooklyn Democratic Party races. I was working for a city council campaign, um, and uh, the the event that changed things for me was nine eleven because. That was primary day. Um, I remember because yeah. I was doing a mayor's race, Freddie Ferrer, okay. uh, on 9-11, and I got a call from our guy in New York saying, a weird thing just happened, a plane hit the World Trade Center, 
And I wonder how this is going to affect the election. And then I was watching TV and the second plane hit. And I said, listen, John, there's not going to be any election today. This isn't, this isn't an accident. Yeah. Well, I actually, I, I hate to break it to you. I remember voting for Peter Vallone in that primary that morning. But then going, I was poll watching for this candidate uh, in, in Brooklyn, right on the waterfront. And so we had an unobstructed view of uh, what was happening. I saw the second plane hit. Um, I saw the first tower fall. And you, you have... I mean, almost no other event in my life have I felt like everything I had done up to that point didn't matter. You know, that that everything that was going to happen after that event in my life was going to change. I remember walking home to Queens, uh, where I lived at the time, very long walk, because the subways were shut down, and just all these thoughts going through my head about, um, you know, going back into my room and writing short stories about being a young guy trying to write short stories uh, (laughs) suddenly seemed uh, like a completely useless uh, uh, way to spend my time. Um, And that was kind of halfway through my second year in grad school, and I basically spent the next several months... Where were you studying? In NYU. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, you know, frankly, like those programs... um, are kind of a waste of time in some respect too, because it's not like you graduate and get a job as a novelist. <laughs> uh, you graduate with a, a manuscript that usually goes in the trash. Um, so I was going to have to do something else anyway. Um, and I, I, you know, I was living in Queens um, and sharing an apartment with a couple other guys. Uh, didn't really have much of a life plan at all. Um, but I knew that I wanted to do something related to what was going to happen after 9-11. And I thought I was going to try to go into journalism as a, you know, writing about international affairs, international relations. Um, had you studied international relations? I had, I had. So in, in, in college, my, again, my two main focuses were uh, writing and creative writing and then kind of politics, but with a focus on international uh, affairs. And um, so I just started, you know, applying for jobs, getting in the door in Washington, because I thought that was the center of gravity now, um, for different magazines and think tanks. And did you, and, and how, you, how did you end up hooking up with Lee Hamilton and yeah. the 9-11 Commission? So uh, I, I interviewed for a magazine called Farm Policy Magazine, and the editor kind of looked at me, you know, who's this guy? He's writing samples, a short story. Um, but I explained to him in uh, my, my situation, he said, look, if you want to write and you want to learn about foreign policy, you should be a speechwriter for someone. Um, and nobody tries to become a speechwriter. I mean, it's very rarely someone's ambition. So I didn't even really know what he's talking about. But he said, there's this guy, Lee Hamilton. He's a former congressman. He runs a think tank here in town. I heard he, he wants a speechwriter, so I'll pass him your name. Um, and actually, I uh, went to see him and you know, we hit it off. Lee um, Hamilton was a congressman from Indiana. Yeah. Very stolid, solid Midwestern guy. Couldn't be any more different from my background. 34 years uh, representing the Southern uh, Indiana district. Um, but, uh, and I frankly didn't know much about him. And I, had, I ended up with two job offers. Uh, I had a job offer for a New York publishing house where there, there were seven women working there. I would have been the only guy, uh, all wearing black. You know, and <laughs> I, I can see my life, you know, in that path. I'd be living in Brooklyn and smoking and trying to pass people my manuscripts and, uh, or go down to, you know, Washington and work for Lee Hamilton. Uh, and that was the, the big fork in the road for me. And, and uh, I chose to go work for Lee Hamilton. And the amazing thing is, and this is how omnipresent 9-11 was for me for a number of years, um, you know, it was a good job, you know, running a think tank, be a speechwriter, do some other things for him. And within a few months of uh, my moving down there, he got appointed the co-chairman of the 9-11 Commission. Um, and so then that, you know, brought all this uh, additional opportunity for me. And what did you learn uh, as on that commission? Obviously, what, what you guys learned um, has become at issue again recently because of all of this um, speculation Bob Graham set off about yep, the, the role of the yeah. Saudis. But um, tell me tell me what you took away from that because you didn't have a background in national security issues then, even though you studied international relations. This is a whole different education. Yeah. Um, you know, what was interesting about that is uh, you learned that um, 
I mean, there are all these kind of very practical things about homeland security and aviation security and how the intelligence community is organized at kind of the wiring of the U.S. government that is important. And uh, the 9-11 Commission led to significant reforms in those areas. But I think the main thing that the 9-11 Commission did that was interesting beyond that was tell the story of how we got to 9-11 and did it in this book that, you know, is written almost like a novel. Um, and, and you participated in that. I did. I did. And, the, you know, Hamilton was very focused on the recommendations. So uh, that was the main part that I had focused on. But I also, you know, was tracking all these other things. I think what I learned is that this was kind of happening, how deep the roots were that led to 9-11. You know, it went back to Afghanistan, to uh, the war uh, that the Mujahideen fought mm -hmm. against the Soviet Union, um, and bin Laden kind of cut his teeth there, and then he bounced around Sudan and Afghanistan. And, you know, Americans weren't really paying attention to some of these things. Um, but what you Although we were supportive of their effort to that's repel right. the Russians, that's the right. Soviets at that That's point. right. And so kind of what you learn is that there are all these unintended consequences to our foreign policies, because in the 80s, we're supporting the Mujahideen. That ends up including people like bin Laden, the people who became the Taliban. Um, in uh, the 90s, we have the Gulf War. Um, bin Laden kind of used that event and the fact that U.S. troops are stationed in Saudi Arabia as kind of his pivot point to focusing on the United States. Um, and, you know, so these things were right at the time. It was the right thing to do uh, for us to, you know, uh, kick Iraq out of Kuwait and to support uh, opponents to the Soviet um, invasion of Afghanistan. But, you know, there are unintended consequences to everything that we do. And, and there are these trends that build up in, um, in different parts of the world. And, and the other fact of the matter was that um, Al-Qaeda also preyed upon the grievances of young people in the Middle East and uh, North Africa and South Asia who, who resented their repressive governments. And so all these um, different forces, uh, you know, created this space that bin Laden filled um, uh, with Al-Qaeda. And in many ways, we're dealing with similar problems today. I, am, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Saudis. And mm -hmm. uh, I know you probably are proscribed from being too responsive, but I'm going to take a run at it anyway, which is how valid is the charge that they were uh, complicit through various sponsorships and so on? Well, I think that, um, you know, there's this issue of the 28 pages and uh, without getting into that specifically yeah. because that's still classified. But um, I think that it's complicated in the sense that it, it's not that it was Saudi government policy to support al-Qaeda, but there were a number of very wealthy individuals in Saudi Arabia who would contribute sometimes directly to extremist groups sometimes to charities that were kind of ended up being ways to launder money to these groups. So a lot of the, the funding, and you know, bin Laden himself was a wealthy Saudi. So um, a lot of the money, the seed money, if you will, for what became Al-Qaeda uh, came out of Saudi Arabia. Could um, that happen without the government's uh, awareness? I think that's... Uh, I think there too, it could, the question is uh, two things. One is, was the government actively trying to prevent that from happening? Um, and I think the answer is no. Um, not because they necessarily supported them, just because it was a bit unregulated space, you know, and rich people can make different contributions. Um, but the other element of this is, um, you know, there, there may be individuals, you know, um, who are operating, who kind of get to do their own thing, you know, within be, the government, within the government or family members, you know, because remember, you have a large rural family, and then they have, you know, people that the Bin Laden's, for instance, were, you know, contractors, essentially, um, for the uh, that rural family. So b basically, there was um, at, at, you know, certainly at least a kind of a, um, an insufficient attention to where all this money was going um, uh, over many years, uh, from the government apparatus. Um, and they're, and, you know, again, what about the notion that they wanted to keep quiescent extremists within the country and this was a way of doing that? Yeah, well, I think that yet there has been a, a, a bargain for many years in Saudi Arabia where essentially the, um, the royal family you know, runs kind of the affairs of state and, and runs kind of the oil company and the, um, the security services. But then there are clerics who have enormous... 
uh, power and um, can operate uh, on their own. And, and that's kind of the the bargain. Now, some of those clerics are, you know, completely legitimate. Um, uh, some people, you know, over the time have propagated a more um, rigid form of uh, Islam. Again, not necessarily the vision of Al-Qaeda and ISIL, uh, but a fairly rigid uh, uh, version of Islam uh, that, you know, we saw over time get taken and perverted by the more extremist elements into the ideology that we see um, uh, out of Al-Qaeda. Do you, this, this to me underscores sort of the complexity of, of, of foreign policy and national security because the Saudis are considered an ally uh, and yet uh, there are elements of um, activities there that seeded the greatest attack, but perhaps on, uh, perhaps seeded the, uh, helped seed the greatest attack on our country. How do you, how do you explain that to Americans that, you know, on the one hand, we call them an ally. On the other hand, uh, you know, they have these deep roots in, in, in these extremist, uh, elements. Well, you know, again, first of all, it is important that I, I wouldn't, uh, I would stop short of saying that there was any government, willful government intention from Saudi Arabia to support uh, al-Qaeda. Again, this is more just uh, how in, our individuals operating in Saudi Arabia. I think the, um, the, the, the difficult thing you know, that Americans uh, you know, need to understand is that we forge these relationships with governments because we have some shared interest with them. Um, and for many years, the basic interest uh, at the root of the U.S.-Saudi relationship was simply uh, they provided the oil that sustained the global economy, uh, and we provided essentially security for uh, the Saudi state. Um, and we didn't really think about <laughs> any other aspect of it in, at great length, at least. Um, and, and yet, you know, over time, uh, these trends emerge. Um, uh, with respect to extremism and funding of extremist uh, groups. Um, and, you know, we, uh, we were slow to pay attention to that because the way the, the relationship was set up is we just kind of thought about, you know, security and oil, and, and uh, we didn't kind of go that other layer down. Um, and, I, you know, I think the point for Americans is sometimes we, um, you know, we fail to recognize how um you know how how omnipresent we are around the world you know people in other countries are aware of the role we play and they're aware of the fact that we're the most important country in the world and so if they have grievances against their own government or against kind of their own economic situation they blame us right so i think it's hard for americans to understand you know why is this constantly come back to us you know um, uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, we are, we are inevitably seen as the one superpower as, um, a potential source of, uh, grievances from all kinds of different people all over the world. Um, but, uh, the obvious question is, um, how, how well, let me ask it this way. Yeah. How blunt are the conversations with the Saudis about, uh, controlling some of these elements about about yeah. uh, breaking ties with some of these elements. Well, they're very blunt, and and you know, look, since nine eleven, the Saudi government has shifted, and now they are uh, a counterterrorism partner, and so now it's not just you know oil and security; it's also cooperation against terrorist organizations, and so we're very blunt, we're very direct, um, and they too now are threatened by these groups themselves, so they have turned hard against. Uh, Al-Qaeda uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. They're working with us against ISIL. So they, they share the counterterrorism um, uh, policies that, that we would pursue. Um, they still have you know, a system of government <laughs> that is very different from ours. Um, and in some cases, a view of regional conflicts that are different from ours. Um, uh, so we're not totally aligned. Plainly, they were... At, they were uh, uh, unhappy with the uh, Iran, with the Iran yeah. agreement. They're they're more focused. You know, they're they're, the, they're very. You know, they are Sunni um, right. Islam, kind of the center of the Sunni Islam in some ways, and uh, Iran is Shia, 
And so there's a sectarian element to a lot of these regional conflicts in Yemen and Syria and Iraq that, uh, you know, I think in our view, um, uh, sometimes um, takes more precedence uh, to some of our uh, allies and partners than the necessity of focusing on these extremist elements like ISIL. So after after your experience with the 9-11 uh, Commission, I, I want to fast forward to when you and I first met. Um, I remember John Favreau, who was the young speechwriting director for our campaign in 2007, saying he needed help, and he had recruited this young guy, Ben Rhodes, who could really help out on the foreign policy side. How did that all come about? Well, you know, I... Um What's by, in, by the campaign, I mean the Obama campaign. Yeah, well, what's important here is, you know, I had gotten to work on the 9-11 Commission, the Iraq Study Group, and those two um, efforts basically did as much as you possibly could get done in Washington on a kind of a nonpartisan, bipartisan basis in that time. However, what I continued to see is the war in Iraq um, – that had been such an enormous mistake and was consuming so much of our resources and young people, you know, was not being addressed. In other words, you know, we were tinkering around. The 9-11 Commission recommendations are important. The Iraq Study Group recommendations are important. But the kind of center of foreign policy was off the rails. And the only way to fix that is politics. Uh, and this is really important because I think sometimes people go into foreign policy you know, they, they, they look down at campaign work or they look down at being in politics. It's kind of, a, you know, it's, it's a less pure re, uh, reflection of, of, you know, trying to be a foreign policy practitioner. I reached a different conclusion. I, you know, I got to work in these very important foreign policy efforts, but I thought, well, nothing's going to change unless the politics changes. And so I wanted to get into politics, which is not something that I originally had intended when I went to Washington. I became partisan. I was made partisan by the Bush years. Um, and so I wanted to work on the 08 cycle. Uh, and I was a speechwriter for kind of part-time, a few months for Mark Warner. Um, mm -hmm. I even went with him to New Hampshire. Um, and he uh, decided not to run in the fall of um, 07, or Prudently, uh, I would pr say. Prudently, yeah. Yes. Fall of 06, I'm sorry. Um, and like right around the same time as when uh, then-Senator Obama went on Meet the Press and kind of said, well, you know, I'm thinking about mm -hmm. maybe running. And so from that moment, I wanted to work on the Obama campaign. And because and, I had totally, you know, been captivated by the 04 Senate campaign. I was following him. I wanted him to run. Um, I remember I got a bunch of offers to work on some of the other aborted uh, Democratic campaigns that, you know, uh, Vilsack and uh, other ones like that. Um, but all I wanted was to work in the Obama campaign. So every line in I could take, I, you know, I showed up at the Senate office, I'll work for free. I, I, I you know, every foreign policy advisor I knew, I, I called them people like Dennis McDonough, who I knew, uh, I said, I'll work for free. And ultimately, but I, what I really wanted to do was be a speechwriter. Um, and, and, you know, my, my resume got passed to Favreau and I think he thought, Oh, here's another one of these foreign policy guys who's mainly a pain in the butt to deal with. Um, but he had a, a speech that Obama gave in, I think, March, um, his first major foreign policy speech. And, and Favreau was having a nightmare of a time dealing with all these outside foreign policy advisors. And so he asked me to help him out. And I, I was able to do that. And I was able to kind of translate the foreign policy inputs into actual speech language and uh, political message. And uh, after that, Favreau said, wait, you need to come out here and work here because we need someone who can do this. So uh, in the summer of 2007, you and I had this, this was my first really major yeah, yeah, interaction yeah. with you. I had read this uh, quote from uh, Don Rumsfeld saying that if, uh, if we knew where bin Laden was and he was in Pakistan, that we wouldn't go in after him out of respect for the Pakistanis. And I thought, this sounds insane to me, knowing very little about foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, but, but it defied common sense that if we knew, first of all, that our ally in Pakistan would defy us, and secondly, that we wouldn't go after him. And so I suggested a paragraph in the speech that we ran by him or you ran by uh, Senator Obama. And it turned. And I didn't realize that it was going to be as um, volcanic as it yeah. turned out to be. There was a much bigger debate about that than you may even know, Axel. You probably were at the time. But, you know, 
interestingly, Lee Hamilton had said the same thing recently at a, a Christian Science Monitor breakfast. He said, you know, we should go into Pakistan to get bin Laden if we know where he is. And, and you had seen this article about Rumsfeld. And, and so we, you know, I worked up the, the paragraph that we talked about mm-hmm. um, where we said, we, if Pakistan won't go after him, we will. Um, almost all the foreign policy advisors objected. Uh, and they wanted to take it out. <laughs> and and it, there is kind of an Ill- illogic sometimes to how the foreign policy establishment looks at things, because the reason you don't say that is just because you don't say that, you know, because <laughs> it'd be undiplomatic, and, but it defies common sense. And, and one of the things that Barack Obama brings to foreign policy, I think, is common sense. You know, if something is the right thing to do, we should do it. And just because it's never been done that way, that's not a reason to not do it. Um, and so we had enough people who could validate, no, this is good to do, people like Hamilton, that we got the language uh, through. Um, and what I remember is, you know, that made big waves, big news. Um, and I remember I moved out to Chicago right after that. And at five in the morning, I was woken up, I was sleeping on my friend's couch, because Pervez Musharraf had declared martial law in Pakistan and blamed Barack Obama's speech for it. Um, and uh, I had all these people saying, what are we going to do about this? This is being burned in effigy. Yeah, and I didn't, uh, I didn't expect the, my first day out in Chicago to be uh, that volcanic. Um, but, you know, what it did is it, 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 you know, the debate on foreign policy had been about the Iraq war. And, and, you know, Obama had opposed the Iraq war and everybody else had supported it. Um, and then all of them pounced on him. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the foreign policy establishment. All of his opponents, including yeah. Senator Clinton, yeah. all jumped him yeah. on that. And then talking to Iran, talking yeah. to and Cuba, and Cuba, talking yeah. to hostile leaders. Look, if, if people think campaigns don't matter, the, the, the seminal moment for me in that campaign was in August, the debate at Soldier Field, mm-hmm. where they all ganged up on him. Um, and they said, you know, you're naive and you want to go to Pakistan and you want to talk to Iran. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and he said, I'm not going to be lectured on foreign policy by the people who are responsible for the biggest mistake of my generation, which is to go into Iraq. And not only was that politically very effective in, you know, lifting up the taking what would have been a weakness, his inexperience and making it a strength and saying, I had the judgment to oppose this war, even though I wasn't in the Senate like you were. But look at where that led. That debate was about talking to Iran and Cuba. Uh, that's what he did as president. And, and the two of the biggest pieces Not of his legacy. Going after bin Laden. And been going after bin Laden. So probably the three biggest foreign policy accomplishments, or three of them at least, uh, taking out bin Laden, the nuclear deal with Iran, and the opening to Cuba, uh, were all in that debate. Uh, I think that that was actually the most pivotal few weeks in the campaign, not just in terms of foreign policy, but in terms of Obama getting sort of his sea legs under him and really uh, def- understanding what what he wanted to, how he wanted to project yeah. himself in the campaign. And, and it really certified him as a candidate who was challenging the status quo, yeah. uh, which gave him the energy that carried him through uh, the rest of the campaign. I remember, and I don't know if you remember the call the day after the confrontation, I think it was in South Carolina, about whether he should, whether the president should speak to hostile leaders without preconditions was yeah. the question. And uh, and he got on the call, which he rarely did, that morning strategy call, and he said, I don't want you guys backing off one inch. Uh, he said... Yeah. Uh, I said exactly what I believe, and I don't want any explanations or parsing. He said, I think that's the right position. And as you point out, it ended up being sort of a defining principle yeah. of his of his presidency. There's a story you'll like, Axe, which is that after the Iran deal was completed, uh, me and Susan Rice um, and, and you know, maybe a couple other people went in the Oval Office to tell him. And you know, we were talking about how long we'd worked on this. And he said, maybe I should call the guy uh, who asked that YouTube debate question. <laughs> so he was thinking, you know, even the day of this momentous thing, uh, you know, he did in some ways trace it all, all, all the way back to that. So at the end of the campaign, um, when, uh, when he decided to appoint Senator Clinton as Secretary of State, you were going to come in, you were coming in at first as a speechwriter, communications person in the national security um, uh, council, but was that a shock to you? Was that a surprise to you? I was absolutely 
floored. Uh, it was a total shock. I mean, you know, we look, there were some hard, raw feelings in that campaign. Um, but what was interesting is I was assigned, uh, I was a person from kind of Obama world assigned to her confirmation hearing. Um, so I remember I had to go out to her house, um, in Washington and I kind of walk in and I felt like the interloper, you know, that she's there with, uh, uh, you know, uh, Cheryl Mills and Lisa Muscatine and Jake Sullivan and all these Clinton people. And I'm the one guy, you know, kind of, it was like, I walked in the room and everybody stopped talking and kind of looked at me, you know? um, <laughs> But then, like, she could not have been more warm. She could not have been more gracious. Everything people say about working with her is, she, you know, is true. She was just, um, you know, totally threw herself into the job from the second uh, she uh, accepted it. And uh, so that made it much easier to, to very quickly kind of leave that past behind. I, uh, it, people, I get asked often about the relationship between the two of them, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And my observation, and you know, I, I, you probably had a more of a lens on the relationship because you were dealing with those issues and interacting with her uh, group at the State Department. But uh, was that uh, they developed a very strong and respectful relationship? Yeah, I mean, I, they really did. I mean, they they became uh, not just kind of you know people who worked together; they became close. Um, and I think the reason why is. It took some time. I remember the first time I thought that that was happening was at, in Copenhagen, the climate change conference, where Obama shows up at the December of '09, and the thing is a mess. Uh, it had fallen apart. Uh, they were not going to reach an agreement, but they had to spend the whole day in kind of shuttle diplomacy with the Chinese and the Indians and the Europeans uh, trying to put something back together to keep the possibility of a future climate agreement alive. Uh, and they did. Paris, frankly, is the Paris Climate Agreement is... Uh, the manifestation of what began in Copenhagen. And it was deft, but they were enjoying themselves. You know, they were having fun, uh, you know, dealing with foreign leaders, uh, strategizing. From room to room, from trying room, to Literally cut room deals. to room, cut yeah. deals. You, you know, Hillary, you go talk to this person, I'll talk to that person. And, you know, then we traveled with her a lot and they spent time together. And I think what they enjoyed was, it's interesting, when you're, when you're in these big jobs, it helps to have been a politician because you're dealing with foreign countries that have their own politics. And they like to talk about, okay, what are the politics of this leader? What, what is he dealing with? You know, and, 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 and kind of sizing up the interlocutors. And, I, and so I think they kind of enjoyed the human element of foreign policy. And they could both look at it in a way that nobody else could because they themselves, you know, are, are political leaders who've had to be attuned to different concerns. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, the argument that Senator Obama made about the war in Iraq. Uh, Bernie Sanders is making the same argument now about uh, about Hillary Clinton, um, and uh, the argument from the left is that she is um, is is too apt to be an interventionist. Uh, what what is your sense? Of why isn't the argument hmm. that Sanders is making now uh, relevant as it was in uh, two thousand and eight? Well, look, on Iraq, um, far more so than she did before the OID campaign, she has said that was a mistake. She said that she was wrong um, in her vote. And we should put on out your current Secretary of State, John Kerry, also yeah. voted for the war. Yeah. Right? Um, I'd say a couple of things. You know, one is uh, she is, you know, she is someone who has been open to military uh, solutions. She, in general, in debates that we had in the Situation Room, supported um, uh, taking military action and, and a lot of the questions that emerged. Uh, however, you know, she also is a real internationalist. Um, she's someone who values alliances. Um, and so uh, I don't think she would subscribe to the kind of rash neoconservative interventionism uh, where we were doing things by ourselves. Uh, I think she, you know, would be more of someone who's trying to build coalitions. The other thing I'd say, though, is that there's just not a lot of space for military adventurism for the United States right now. Um, and by space, I mean political space at home. But also, um, you know, we've just absorbed so much uh, in terms of lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan that the notion of launching a project like Iraq uh, today, um, uh, I, I think it would be very difficult for any president to do that, including a Republican president for that matter. So I think, so. you know, even on the Republican side, some of the bolder statements about wanting to, you know, go to war in this place or that, 
Uh, I don't know that anybody who gets into the office uh, would actually do that. And you see that in Syria, where there's all this criticism of the president. But then when you say to people, okay, well, does that mean you want to send troops into Syria? Almost all of them say, well, no, no, I just mean we should bomb them. And well, we are. She did. She did. She did even uh, in this debate last night. argue again for no fly zone which yeah. is something you guys have resisted yeah and that's a di- that's a difference um and I, I, but there too here uh, the rea- why have you resisted well a no fly zone in syria would not solve the problem um if you had uh, an area of uh, of geography in syria where um planes can fly over it people would still be killing each other on the ground uh, isil doesn't have planes so uh, that doesn't solve the isil problem they would be still able to massacre people on the ground. Um, and we would have to devote an enormous amount of our resources, which are currently devoted to finding ISIL and killing them wherever they are, to maintaining this no-fly zone. So it's just not a good Her argument is that you create a safe zone for Syrians so that they're not under siege. But how would it be safe if there's no ground force? Um, I mean, that, that, you know, if you have a no-fly zone, you, yes, the, there's not a risk of air attack, but there are many different forces fighting on the ground in Syria, including extremist forces that would still be able to carry out attacks on the ground. And the fact is we have the ability to target them and to bomb them already. Um, you know, a no-fly zone might create some additional ability to manage some of the refugee flows um, and, and to brush back some of the Syrian regime's uh, air attacks uh, on civilians. But frankly, that violence could just you know, manifest itself in different ways on the ground or migrate to other areas. Ben, you worked uh, closely with uh, Bob Gates when he was Secretary of Defense. Uh, he made a speech the other day and did an interview in which he was critical of the national security staff. Uh, I'll read a paragraph to you. Gates criticized the current National Security Council's implementation of policy, arguing that, quote, micromanagement by a very large NSC staff undercut Obama's efforts to use power against the Islamic State and contain China in the South China Sea. It becomes so incremental that the message is lost. It makes them look reluctant. And this was an ongoing complaint publicly and privately that the president relies very much on you in particular and the national security staff uh, and doesn't take the counsel enough of uh, his line officers in State Department and the Defense Department. Is, that, is there any validity to that? And how do you respond to Gates? I don't think so. I mean, first of all, um, he relies, he insists upon knowing the opinions and being able to meet directly and hear directly from the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. Um, certainly, John Kerry has had a lot of running room <laughs> to pursue uh, ambitious initiatives. Uh, Ash Carter um, has been, you know, certainly managing the, the counter-Israel campaign. But look, I'd take it directly on. Um, yeah. What some of this is rooted in um, is the way the Afghanistan process started um, in '09 where the president, before he received any recommendation from military commanders, um, it was given to the Washington Post that that they needed 40,000 troops um, in Afghanistan. Um, And it took the president uh, three or four months um, to uh, get to the option that became the Afghan surge um, because he had to almost force um, a process wherein instead of just pouring troops in Afghanistan, we stepped back and we we contemplated, okay, before I approve a troop request, I need to know what are the objectives? What are we trying to achieve? What are we not trying to achieve? Um, what is a larger strategy here? How do I weigh this against all the other requirements I have around the world? Um, and if it's micromanagement uh, to have civilian control of the military, uh, and to have a situation where you ask tough questions before you use force, uh, I, I would take issue with that characterization. That's the responsibility of the commander-in-chief. Uh, the commander-in-chief isn't there to rubber stamp requests for U.S. military forces to go into harm's way. He's there to make sure that that's the right decision, to make sure that they have a clear mission, to make sure that we're weighing that mission against a whole host of other priorities, foreign and domestic. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think that it's, Um, Frankly, um, a a disturbing notion that uh, having a a White House 
uh, and a president of the United States who's going to be very careful and deliberate in making decisions about when to use force, uh, I think it's very disturbing that that is somehow seen as a negative trait. I think that that um, is one of the best attributes of how uh, President Obama's approached the job. One place you did use force was in Libya. And the president said in an interview recently that if he had uh, any misgivings about any particular decision he made, uh, it was not thinking through the sort of aftermath of the initial actions that were taken in Libya. What was what should have been done there? Well, um, you know, what was interesting about Libya was that the intervention itself, you know, went very well in the sense that we had, um, you know, allies with us. We had an air campaign that didn't become a slippery slope into a ground campaign. Uh, Gaddafi was ultimately removed from power. I think... um, But, you know, the hallmark of, it seems to me, his philosophy, and I'm going to ask you at the end of this to sort of sum up what the legacy of Barack Obama is in foreign policy, but my read of him has always been that he wants to do what often isn't done which and wasn't done in Iraq, which is to ask the question, what next? Yeah. What happens next? Uh, he seems to be suggesting that that process wasn't as rigorous. It wasn't. And no, and, he, and he's right. And, and look, what went wrong is a couple of things. One, there was um, a governing entity in Libya um, that seemed very capable. Um, uh, the TNC. These were kind of technocrats. Many of them had been in the Libyan diaspora. Uh, they seemed like they had a good plan for the country. Uh, I think that we miss, um, uh, I think we overstated in our own minds the extent to which the people who were governing Libya after Gaddafi was removed had connections down to the people with guns in the streets, these militias. Because um, essentially what you had is a government that could not exert its writ over the country. And then you had all these militias that started to control territory. Um, the second point is we thought that there were going to be programs of uh, being able to train and support security forces, and the Europeans were going to engage in some of those. And that just never really got off the ground for a whole host of reasons. Um, and the Libyans themselves, frankly, didn't want – they're very focused on their sovereignty. They didn't want a, fo- a large international presence. So it was a struggle just to get the UN up and running in Libya. Um, and so the plan that I think we had, which is that we'd work with this new kind of technocratic government and they were going to be developing a new program for the country and they'd get the oil online, they'd get revenue and we'd be training security forces. It sounded good. Uh, but the fact is um, all of those things quickly began to run into the reality that the militias that fought the civil war were not disarming, nor were they accepting the authority of this government. And that was the root cause of a lot and of And was that problems. a failure of uh, intelligence? Was there, was there an inability to get intelligence assets in there to really assess the situation? Why, why couldn't that be um, foreseen? I don't think it was a failure of intelligence. And I have to say, you know, they think the intelligence community was up front about what they knew and didn't know. You know, here's what we're seeing and here are the trends. Um, you know, I, I think that we probably weren't as rigorous uh, as we could have been in thinking through all of the different, um, uh, you know, trap doors that uh, were in Libya. But the other fact of the matter is, even in retrospect, um, the question is what would have made it much of a difference? Because, again, the Libyans didn't want us there uh, on the ground. So it's not as if they were saying, please send in a peacekeeping force. And we said no. They were very hostile to the concept of foreign intervention in any way. So I think we could have been more rigorous. We could have tried to do uh, more um, things to build relationships with the power brokers in Libya. Um, We could have been much more aggressive in insisting upon uh, international support for governance. Um, But there were some limitations that were kind of inherent to the fact that the Libyans themselves wanted to to manage their own project. Let's talk about a project that you were personally deeply involved in that turned out, or, or so far seems to be turning out better, which is Cuba. Uh, how did that whole uh, initiative uh, come about? Obviously, a lot was going on before the public yeah. dimensions of it were ever uh, apparent. Well, you know, President Obama came into office wanting to change Cuba policy, but I don't think he had a sense of just how much. 
In 2009, we took some pretty important steps in allowing Cuban Americans to travel to Cuba and send remittances there. Um, but, and we saw that as a first step, but then Cuba arrested Alan Gross, this USAID subcontractor who's operating Cuba. And that kind of froze everything uh, because we had an American uh, in prison in Cuba and we couldn't really pursue additional policy changes in that context and kind of got put on the back burner, um, especially with everything else happening in the world. After the president was reelected, uh, we went through kind of, we went around the globe. You know, what do we want to do in the second term? And on Cuba, uh, he said, well, I want to test, you know, can we, can we make another run at this, see if we can get Alan Gross out of prison and do something bigger on Cuba? Uh, and I essentially volunteered to, to, to manage that pro- project for him. Um, and so I began secret negotiations with the Cubans in uh, the spring of 2013, and it really, at the beginning, was just about, you know, uh, was there going to be a way to see Alan Gross released from prison so that we could open up some space to do some additional things? Just, d- just, just out of curiosity, how does one begin secret negotiations? <laughs> so, uh, or is that a secret? Yeah, it's partially secret, but no, we, um, we sent a message to the Cubans um, through, uh, I think I'd say, intelligence channels saying that the White House would like to pursue a dialogue with you on the subject of prisoners, um, which they knew would be on gross. And we kind of waited to hear back. Um, and they came back and said they were very interested. They wanted to, to meet. And and, uh, um, and the people that they suggested would come to the meeting on their side, who, you know, that that is the secret. I have not yet said who we were meeting with because I want to be respectful of, of the Cubans uh, uh, on that. Um, they were serious people, though, and clearly people who had cloud in their system. And so we knew that they were interested. So we, then we had to figure out where to meet them. So we called the Canadian government. You know, we had to find a third government. We couldn't go to Cuba. They couldn't come to the United States without that attracting an enormous amount of attention. So we called the Canadian government, because um, they're obviously a close friend of ours. They also have relations with Cuba and said, could you guys host secret talks with, with the Cubans? You can't tell anybody about it. Um, and they were great. Uh, the Canadians basically set everything up so that you know they'd figure out reasons for the Cubans to be up there and so the meetings happened in Canada. Yeah, and 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 so what would happen is you know we'd fly up to Ottawa, um, you know, commercial, um, uh, and uh, and uh, we get picked up by the Canadians at the airport. They take us very discreetly to kind of a, a, a venue they had for diplomatic negotiations outside of Ottawa, uh, and they put us in a room. Uh, they wouldn't ask any questions. <laughs> uh, we'd negotiate all day with the Cubans. Uh, um, I mean, the Canadians played a, you know, a hugely helpful role in setting that up. It, the funny thing, Axe, is um, I, I never ran into someone I knew. I was always worried I was going to run into somebody in the Ottawa airport who would be like, what, what, what are you doing here? Except Teddy Goff, uh, who I think you know. Yes, um, yeah. He, he said, a digital guy for, for the campaign. And he said, he sees me in the Ottawa airport. And he's like, what are you doing up here? And I was like, oh, you know, just some meetings. Uh, he didn't press it. Uh, so there was some luck in keeping it secret. Because, uh, you know, if a journalist had seen me in Ottawa, it might have been a little harder. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and how uh, a lot was made of the Pope and, and his role at the end. How, how meaningful was that? So what happened is we were having this conversation with the Cubans over many, many meetings. And we, what we realized is we were finding a solution to the prisoner question because we had a, an intelligence asset in prison in Cuba we wanted released. And that allowed us to do a spy swap for some of the people that they had in U.S. prisons. Um, and Alan Gross can be released. But we, we said, let's make this bigger. Let's see how – let's do something big. Um, and let's make the objective normalizing relations. And it took a while to get there. Uh, neither of us started in that place. Um, and so we started to realize this was going to be more ambitious. When the president went to the Vatican in March and, uh, of 2014, he saw the Pope, and they had a conversation for about an hour. And Cuba was one of the principal subjects. And the president actually told the Pope about, um, you know, we actually have something going with them. And the Pope said, well, I want to be helpful in any way that I can. I really think it's time for this. Did he ask the Pope if he could keep a secret? Uh, we presumed he could keep a secret. Uh, <laughs> But actually, the, the, the Pope was probably the first foreign leader that the president told about the negotiations. And uh, so we kind of put the ball in his court, right? He's the Pope. Like, he, he has ways of knowing what the right thing to do uh, is. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and we got a letter, um, a, you know, a month or two later, there was a, he, the Pope, very, I think, very smart. He just sent a letter to both Raul Castro and, and President Obama. It was the exact same letter 
saying that he supported a resolution to issues involving prisoners, and he supported improving relations between both countries. So he kind of got both elements to the negotiation. And he said, I want to be helpful in any way that I can. And the cardinal from Havana, Cardinal Ortega, delivered that letter um, to, to both presidents. He came up to the White House and, and mm-hmm. did it. Uh, and so then the ball was back in our court. <laughs> you know? um, and we, uh, so we had to think about, well, how do we bring them into this? And what we realized is we were making all these agreements, you know, and, and making all these commitments to each other, but you know, we didn't really know each other. We having a third party that could receive these commitments and be essentially the guarantor, the witness to the agreement would be very important. And when this became public, it would be very helpful to have the Vatican having literally blessed uh, this process. So we reached back out and said we'd like to have a meeting in the Vatican where we and the Cubans come out there and we kind of present you know, the progress we've made and, and that kind of formalizes the agreement because after you've told the Pope something, you can't take it back, you right. know? Um, so we flew out there in October and, and, you know, we and the Cubans spent all day in the Vatican. Each of us met with the Vatican then we met all together and we essentially put forward, um, here are the agreements and they were like stunned. I, I think they didn't realize just how ambitious this was. The Vatican. Yeah. I mean, I think they thought maybe we'd do a prisoner exchange and mm-hmm. agree to keep talking to each other. But the fact that we were normalizing relations, establishing diplomatic relations, they were overjoyed. Um, but actually, that's when it became real. Even though it didn't come public till December, that meeting was in October. And I remember walking out of the Vatican realizing, well, we can't take this back. <laughs> we've just told the, we've just told the, you know, the, the, the representatives of the Pope that we're going to do this. Yeah. Do you, uh, what, what are your expectations for this Agreement? How, do you do you see forward momentum that's unstoppable here? Yeah, I mean, there's already been a ton of momentum. I mean, just the fact that we have embassies in each country. There's so much more American travel down to Cuba. There's so much more activity, business, commercial opening, people to people ties are ramping up. And the reason why I think it's irreversible is the people in both countries love this. Um, the Cuban people are just thirsting for engagement from America, and they love President Obama, and they want more engagement with the outside world. And the American people are fascinated by Cuba. Um, and, um, you know, they want to do business there. They want to travel there. They want to get to know the Cuban people. They, there's all these, uh, uh, all this interest percolating up. And so I think that as people start traveling down there, as people start doing business down there, the notion that anyone's going to turn that off and say, oh, those direct flights to Cuba, those are canceled. You know, your business deal in Cuba, that's that's off, you know. I, politically, I think that's impossible. There's a weird nuance here, which is that uh, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee after Bob Kerry left was Bob Menendez from New Jersey, who was a virulent opponent, a Democrat, of uh, he's Cuban-American, mm-hmm. of normalizing relations. Congress changed hands uh, in the 2014 election. Could you have done what you did if, you, if Menendez were still the foreign... Relations, foreign affairs chairman, foreign relations chairman? Um, I think they would have had, it's a very good question. Um, I think that he could have made life a lot harder. Um, but in certain terms of trying to, to, to block what we were doing. Um, but I don't think, I think the majority in both the House and Senate support what we're doing. Of, of Democrats. And Republicans. And Republicans. I think an overall, because you have... What you have is an interesting mix of people, you know, progressives who support this, libertarians who uh, hate the embargo because they think business should be... Senator Flake has been a... Senator Flake has been a champion. I had a group of Tea Party Republicans in the sit room meeting with me about Cuba that I never thought I'd, you know, be talking to, and we were just vigorously agreeing with each other. The ag states want to do business in Cuba. The hospitality and travel industry is, you know, uh, you know, interested. But here's the most important thing that's happening, Axe, and you'll appreciate this. The Cuban-American community is decisively moving in a mm-hmm. different direction. Uh, the younger generation supports lifting the embargo. Even the older generation, as they've been able to travel, are going down there and they're seeing how much the Cuban people are thirsting for this engagement. And the attitudes are changing down there. Um, we went to Cuba uh, Carlos Gutierrez came with us, mm-hmm. who's George Bush's commerce secretary, uh, was a hardliner. And uh, he vigorously opposed what we announced on December 17th. Now he's advocating for lifting the embargo. You know, a guy named Mike Fernandez, uh, who was one of the largest Jeb Bush contributors over many years, a big Republican, uh, he's now actively lobbying Congress to lift the embargo. Um, Miami is changing in ways that I think people don't fully appreciate. Um, you know, we 
the Obama campaign won the Cuban vote in Florida in 2012. It's the first Democrat to do that for a very long time. I think that trend is just accelerating with what's happening. And so as the Cuban-American community shifts, if you've got this, the, the Chamber of Commerce, the, the Catholic Church and faith communities, the progressive movement, uh, the ag states, and Cuban-Americans all wanting this policy changed, uh, I think that ultimately the, the, the remaining holdouts in Congress or on shaking, One of them's leaving. Hand. Senator Rubio is leaving. Senator Rubio is leaving. I think the embargo is going to be lifted much sooner than people think. Um, whether it happens under us, uh, I don't know. But if not, I think it'll happen very soon. So I just want to close out on two uh, questions. One is um, regrets. You, you, you are, I have to attest to this, you are a brilliant, brilliant speechwriter. It was a gift for me to work with you and to... Uh, uh, and and to see you work with the president uh, on speeches. One of them you uh, worked very hard on was the speech in Cairo at the beginning of the administration, which was an outreach to the world Muslim community. Um, that has had very mixed uh, results. Um, I throw that out there as as one potential mm-hmm. uh, regret. But what what are your greatest regrets, and what are your and how do you think the president's foreign policy will be remembered by history? Well, first of all, thanks for the comments. I mean, on speeches, though, uh, you're only a great speechwriter if you write for someone who gives great speeches. Uh, um, I always tell people to close their eyes and picture uh, someone other than Barack Obama delivering the Yes, We Can speech, and it might not be a great speech. Um, but anyway, on, on— It's also true that he refines— Speeches he in does. Ways he that works are on them really, really yeah. elegant. He works on them at length. You know, the, the, your question kind of points to, uh, I think, a, a, an overarching answer. But um, I think the Cairo speech holds up as a vision of what we would like the world to be like. <laughs> uh, in other words, um, it was the way the president could say, "This is the destination we want to get to." Uh, I don't know. You know, might, might take longer than we would like. But I don't I think anything in that speech is, doesn't reflect, I think, the true, um, the true sense of, of, of how the president looks at the world and the conflicts in the Muslim uh, world. Um, however, um, where the regret intersects with also what I'm proud of is I think that we probably um, overestimated the capacity for there to be positive change on some of those issues that were addressed in the Cairo speech. You know, the Middle East peace process has been an intractable problem. The, the I remember, by the way, going to visit uh, with Mubarak in Egypt yeah. right before that speech, and I remember him telling the president that the Middle East was a very complicated neighborhood. Yeah, well... Uh, and he up, said it sort yeah. of wearily. Yeah. A year, yeah. year or two later, he was in prison. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So it just speaks to the obstacles that yeah, exist. There's so many deeply rooted problems. It's not just Middle East peace. I mean, the, 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 the deeply entrenched uh, sectarian conflicts and extremist conflicts um, in the region proved uh, an immovable object. You know, even when you had the hopefulness of the Arab Spring... The, 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 there was no, you know, there was no water to uh, cultivate the seeds <laughs> um, uh, of, of democracy there. There was just too much um, uh, underlying conflict in the region. So I think if there's regret, I think it's that we, you know, we put a lot of time and energy and effort into um, initiatives that just did the conditions weren't there for them to work. Now, probably that, been exacerbated by the tone of this presidential campaign as well. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but here's where that translates into the opportunity. Um, what the president has done is he, he has refused to allow his presidency to be dragged into the quicksand of the Middle East. You know, I truly believe that as horrible as the conflict in Syria is, that if we had kind of gone in and dove into that uh, in, a, in a big way. It wouldn't be any better because I think we've seen that even when we have troops in places, it doesn't solve the problems. And we, we would not be doing anything else in the world. And what the president has been able to say is that I'm going to manage those challenges. And he's frankly been more effective at taking out terrorists than any president ever. But I'm also going to look for the opportunities in the world. Um, and that's where he's made an enormous difference in 
making the Asia Pacific a focus of our foreign policy and reaching a global agreement to combat climate change, uh, in averting a war and stopping the spread of nuclear weapons to Iran, in pursuing an opening to Cuba. You know, he has found a way to not let the Middle East be the sum total of American foreign policy. And in doing so, he's found enormous opportunities that are going to transform the standing of the United States in the world. If we are leading an effort to, again, transform the global energy economy to uh, one that is not relying on fossil fuels, if we, the opening to Cuba is also an opening to all of Latin America. Uh, Asia Pacific is where our future prosperity is going to come from. I think people will look back and say that Obama started a turn to other regions and issues that is the blueprint that allowed America to sustain its leadership going forward. Ben Rhodes, thanks thanks for your friendship. And I have to say, uh, you've been at this now <laughs> for nine years, uh, really almost 10 years, yeah. going on 10 years here. So I would be remiss if I didn't say thanks for your service as well. And thank you. Yeah, I, I feel every one of those years. <laughs> yeah. I, bet. I bet. Good to be with Good you. Good to be with Axe, and I appreciate all, all of your uh, counsel and friendship over the years. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.